Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. So this is, uh, we come to the end of Jesus' life uh, here in Mark 15. Uh, we're in episode 17, and we're going to be talking today about the crucified Christ. And it's amazing yes. to me the, the number of times I've heard this story and read this story, and, and yet the, the weight of it, um, it just continues. Uh, there's some things that you never quite get used to, and I hope I never do. It is certainly an emotional chapter to read. Uh, we pray as we have, that as you've been through the story of Jesus, that you've grown close to Jesus. That you've learned more about who he is, what he was about. And so this chapter is going to be hopefully emotional. It's going to be something that hurts to read as we've grown closer to Jesus, as we've read about what he's able to do and what he did do while he was on this earth. And so to see Jesus go through the crucifixion is going to break us um, as we think about how much we love him for all that he did. And it's going to be remarkable. Uh, it's easy for us to focus in on the physical suffering of Jesus, but the restraint of the biblical authors is just amazing to me that there is so much that's not said about his suffering in these verses that it'll just kind of gloss over almost, you know, and they scourged him and they crucified him. They don't describe that process in part because the audience they're talking to knew what that meant and did not need anyone to describe it for them. They knew all too well what it meant to be crucified. But for us, you know, centuries removed, from the context of this, uh, it's helpful to think about what that would have meant. And on top of that, to think about the spiritual side of what's going on. It's amazing the number of Old Testament references that we're going to see in this section, uh, because God has known from the beginning uh, what would happen to his son and has prophesied about it in the Psalms and in Isaiah and other places. And so we're going to see really all of history coming together and converging at the crucifixion of the Christ. Yes, amen. Well, let's uh, go ahead and dig in, and let's go ahead and read. Uh, we're we're going to read chapter 15. We're going to back up and read verse 15 again. We're going to read verses 15 through 21 of Mark. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So we, we touched in our last episode on what it meant to be scourged. And again, it's just amazing the restraint of the writers here. Um, scourging was this terrible flogging. And many people actually died from the scourging itself. And Jesus does not die from the scourging, but having that 
blood loss, that pain on top of everything else. I mean, I even think about, it talks about the, the mocking that the soldiers uh, do here and that they put a cloak on him. And to think about, you know, something being put on your back after being scourged, just the layers of suffering that are going on here are hard to imagine. The, the, the utter humiliation and degradation that Jesus is going through is um, it really goes beyond our ability to fully understand. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through something like this. Um, and so Jesus, he's scourged and that, that word crucify, Stephen's already touched on this. some is, is a word that you shudder at whenever you hear it. It is something when you hear crucify goosebumps go over your entire body. This is just such a scary word. And to see it used in this way about God is shocking to me. And so the soldiers, they take him away to this place, to this palace. Um, our English calls it the Praetorium. And they've got the whole Roman, you know, like army there. And they're dressing him up in purple. Of course, purple was like a, you know, a sign of royalty, like a rich man would have purple. And so they weren't giving this to Jesus out of sincerity. This was mocking him. Of course, he's being killed because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So to mock him, they, they put him in the purple. And then they're going to put a crown on him. But, of course, it's a crown of thorns. Stephen, uh, is there some significance to the fact that it's a crown of thorns? Yeah, this was pointed out to me and has just stuck with me. Um, the first time we read about thorns in the Bible, uh, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, uh, to the book of Genesis. And after the first sin, when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, um, God curses uh, the serpent. He curses Eve. He curses the earth because of Adam. And um, I guess really curses Adam as well in the process. But he says in Genesis 3, uh, verse, thir- uh, verse 17, Genesis three seventeen. Uh, to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. This Reference to thorns helps us connect the big ideas here. Thorns are the result of sin. They are the result of what Adam and Eve participated in, and the creation is cursed because of them. And so how amazing in a, in a dark way appropriate is it that as jesus is bearing the consequences of our sin bearing our sins in his body on the tree that they twist together a crown of thorns and he wears the symbol of our sin on his head as he's suffering and dying for us i mean it it just sums up so much of what is actually happening on the cross. It's not just another crucifixion. There were hundreds and thousands of other criminals who, of course, Jesus is not a criminal, but there are criminals by the thousands that were crucified in the Roman Empire. But this is different because this is an innocent man 
who is suffering not for his own sins, but for our sins. And so this crown of thorns is, again, in a dark way, appropriate for the kingship of Jesus. He is throned upon a cross, crowned with blood and thorns, as one hymn says, uh, as another hymn says, did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Uh, there's a lot to meditate on in just that one image of the crown of thorns. Yeah. What an amazing, um, an amazing thing that Jesus was willing to wear for us. Now, also, I love to note just from the physical side of this, Jesus, as he has this crown of thorns on and they're mocking him, you know, hail King of the Jews. You see in verse 19 that they are beating his head with a reed. Um, it's more than just the crown of thorns being placed on Jesus' head. They are then beating it into his skull. Uh, if you can just imagine I mean, the blood running down on Jesus' face as this is happening. He's being spat on in verse 19. I think I made reference to this uh, back last week because this isn't the first time Jesus has been spit on. But in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus' hands are bound up. Can you imagine what it would be like to be spit on and not being able to wipe the spit off of your face? Or what it would be like to be hit in the head without the, inability, without the ability to cover your head and try and protect yourself. Jesus is completely vulnerable. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And there is, uh, of course, many things that he could do about it um, because of the power that he has, but his true power is shown in his, in, in his restraint, in his lack of doing anything, because he bears all this on his back on our behalf. And as we see him going, being led out to the actual crucifixion, again, we're not even to the cross itself yet. Um, they lead him out to crucify him. And apparently what happens is Jesus collapses. Um, we, we, it doesn't tell us that explicitly, but he goes out um, initially with his own cross. We know that from the other gospel accounts. And then they uh, grab this guy from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, uh, to bear his cross for him. And again, it, it, I don't think it's a, too much of a speculation to say that Jesus collapsed. His body was at, at its, the end of his strength with all that he's already been through, and he's not even been nailed to the cross yet. It is interesting here, the details that Mark gives us. Uh, Simon of Cyrene, he's coming in from the country, and it mentions he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mm -hmm. um, to us, like... Uh, well, that doesn't help me, you know, who's Alexander and Rufus. But whoever Mark was writing to uh, would have likely known Alexander and Rufus. Um, and it's interesting to think about. We don't know much about Simon of Cyrene or his family, but it would appear that they would have become known. They would have perhaps been converted and become Christians after this. And we do have a reference to a Rufus in Romans 16, 13, um, who's known to the church there in Rome. It's sometimes said that Mark may be written to a Roman audience. Um, so there may be some connection to make there. Um, but it's fascinating to think about the effect that the crucifixion would have had on the crowds in general, but in particular on Simon, who carries the cross of Jesus for a time uh, up to the place where Jesus is going to be crucified. Yes, yes. An amazing detail added for us. Well, let's go ahead and uh, tackle the next section. Stephen, you got verses 22 through 39? Yes. 
This is Mark 15, verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Wow. So Jesus, he's brought out to this place called Golgotha. Um, means the place of a skull already kind of sounds spooky and scary. And exactly because um, there are other uh, executions done there. Right. And so in verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but it says that Jesus didn't take it. I've, I've heard that it's possible that this mixture would have been a painkiller of sorts, actually. And Jesus refuses it. Um, he, he wants to take on the full weight of the cross because we, we know, and we'll talk more about what the cross means. Um, wow, I'm impressed at Jesus's ability to go through this and, and not use the power that we know he has to stop it. Verse 24 says, and they crucified him. Again, there's that word again. And uh, Stephen already alluded to it, that, that of course the gospel writers, they don't go into a whole lot of detail on what that means. But I would like to just point out uh, a couple of basic facts about crucifixion. Uh, of course, in our heads, we have the typical like T, right? The, the cross in our heads. And likely what would have happened is there would be a vertical part of the cross that would stay stationary. It would stay in the ground. That was called the simplex. And they would make whoever it was being crucified carry the horizontal part of the cross. Uh, the, the patabolum is what that was called. And whenever they would get to the site, the place of a skull, the Golgotha, they would then nail those people's hands to the horizontal part of the cross and then hoist them up onto the vertical part and attach the horizontal bar to the vertical bar, hence making like the cross, making the T uh, look. And also on the simplex, the vertical part of the cross, there would be a little shelf 
that would sit behind the rear of whoever it was that was being crucified. That was called the seducula. And that would be like a little shelf that they would be able to sit on. And at first, when you hear that, uh, you might be tempted to think, wow, well, that's nice. They give them a little seat to sit on. But it was actually something to make crucifixion even more cruel. The shelf was meant for them to be able to push themselves up so that they could get a breath. It was prolonging the amount of suffering that would be done on the cross. The more you push yourself up to take a breath, that's, that's good. But then once you sink back down, you're going to run out of breath again. And it just prolongs the suffering of anybody who's going to be crucified. And so when Jesus gets there, um, they, they nail him to the cross. Now, the text doesn't say this, but when we look over um, at the resurrection, Jesus will make reference to the holes in his hands and, and the holes in his feet. Um, and so that's, that's how we know that he was, in fact, nailed to the cross. And it's just, again, incredible to think about the spiritual dimension of what's going on here. All of this was prophesied, first of all. Um, in, in Psalm 22, we have so many references. If you just read this section and then read Psalm 22, we're not going to try to make all the connections uh, for you today. But I would just encourage you sometime as, a, as an exercise to read this section and then read Psalm 22 and just find all of the connections. Some of the most obvious ones, as you just described crucifixion, um, is that uh, it says in um, Psalm 22, verse 16, uh, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And there's, there's a description there. Um, of what crucifixion would have been, that Jesus is held in this vulnerable position, his hands and his feet pierced. And again, Psalm 22 is written by David a thousand years before Jesus even born and hundreds of years before crucifixion is even invented. And so it, it's amazing to think about the fulfillment of prophecy happening here. In that same verse, Mark 15, 24, it talks about the soldier's casting lots, which is a kind of a game of chance um, to, uh, to divide up Jesus's clothes. Of course, he's been stripped for this. There is no human dignity left in crucifixion. And just a couple verses after that, in Psalm 22, in verse 18, it says, they divine my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Um, Psalm 22 is just being fulfilled in its entirety in this context, even the enemies of Jesus are fulfilling parts of this as they mock him and wag their heads um, down in verse 29, Psalm 22 talks about all who pass by, you know, wag their heads at me. They open their mouths at me. Um, it's just uh, incredible to see there's in some ways more details about the crucifixion in Psalm 22 than there are in the gospel accounts. Um, and to think all of it that Jesus is bearing for us. You'll note that um, it's the third hour when they crucified him. Um, that is uh, 9 a.m., uh, what we would call 9 a.m. And they post this sign over his head, the King of the Jews. It's fascinating to me how much Jesus is called the King in Mark 15. Uh, Pilate asked him in verse 2, are you the King of the Jews? 
uh, in verse 10 and in verse 12, he said, what, what should I do with the king of the Jews? Or do you want me to release him? And then when the soldiers you know, put the cloak on him and put the crown of thorns, uh, hail, king of the Jews. And now the inscription above him, which normally would you know, tell you what the person had done to deserve crucifixion. You know, this person's robbed or this person's murdered or this person led an insurrection. And Jesus's charge read the king of the Jews. And it says in verse 27, they crucified with him two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And again, that's almost a description of what you talk about with a king that, you know, sit at someone's right hand or left hand as like a position of power. And of course here, this is shame as there's these three executions happening at the same time. And you remember back in Mark chapter 10, when James and John uh, come to Jesus and they don't understand what the kingdom is all about. And what is it that they asked for um, in Mark ten thirty seven? Yeah, they wanted to sit one on his right and one on his left in his glory. And Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized at the baptism with which I'm baptized? Both of those are references to Jesus' suffering. The cup of God's wrath, a baptism or an immersion in suffering. And here is the other reference in Mark to one on the right and one on the left. And so this is Jesus's glory. This is his kingship. It is his throning on a cross. The kingdom of God is the upside down kingdom. And Jesus has talked with his disciples about that over and over again. But it's amazing to me to see how Jesus is described as the crucified king or the crucified Christ, the, the anointed one in this chapter. And the, his death as a criminal is being repurposed as a throne scene in the Gospels. And that should get our attention as followers of Jesus, that if we're thinking about greatness and importance, we have to turn that upside down as we come to the foot of the cross and see his enthronement is in his suffering and complete self-sacrifice for the good of other people. Yes. Amen. And so you'll notice some of the things that they were yelling at Jesus as they were going by, you know, things like, aha, you know, you said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. You know, you're the one that said you're going to be able to, to, to do this. So why don't you just go ahead and do it already? They don't mean this out of sincerity. Of course, they're mocking him about this. Uh, the, the Jews, the chief priests, the, you know, like the Jewish leaders of the day, they're going by Jesus and mocking him. And saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Stephen, what, what kind of shocks me about that? I don't know if they're saying this tongue-in-cheek. They're at least acknowledging that he did save other people. I mean, they saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw the signs. They saw him heal on the Sabbath day. And yet here they say he can't even save himself. They don't see the power that Jesus has. If he's the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel... Let him come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. You know, I, I would say, even if Jesus did come down from that cross, I don't know if these stubborn men would have seen and believed. Uh, Jesus has given them plenty of reason to know that he is the king, that he is the son of God, but they didn't want to see it. And it says in verse 32 that those who were on his right and left, they were also insulting him and making fun of him. And so I, I said this earlier, but 
but the power that Jesus has in his restraint impresses me. How badly would you want to come down off that cross and show them who you really are? But Jesus stays up there. And that is a blessing. Because for every second he was there, he was paying for my sins and he was paying for your sins. Amen. And so we see that creation itself is affected in this moment. Uh, in verse 33, it said, when the sixth hour had come, that's you know, 12 noon, uh, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Yeah, that would be what we would call 3 p.m. And this is uh, a symbol sometimes of God's wrath. Uh, you'll see in the prophets and other places that uh, darkness and the idea of the sun being darkened is what happens when God is coming in judgment. And here, as God's judgment is being leveled against his own son who is bearing our sins, not because Jesus is guilty, but because we had sinned. There's darkness. Um, one hymn puts it this way. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died from man, the creature's sin. Uh, it's amazing that the creation itself, um, as the light of the world is dying our light, the sun, also hides its face while Jesus is suffering. And of course, this would have been the brightest part of the day from noon to 3 p.m. And yet this is where darkness comes over the whole land. And then Jesus cries out about the ninth hour when the time comes for him to depart. And he cries out, it records it for us in Aramaic first, um, which Mark has done for us several times. But again, it captures the exact words that Jesus would have said in that moment and makes it vivid for us. But the meaning of those words is the first phrase from Psalm 22 that we've already referenced. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's so much wrapped up in that. We're not going to try to plumb the depths of this statement and all that it means, but it should cause us to go back and read Psalm 22 because in Psalm 22, David is going back and forth between recognizing his deep agony, but still trusting in God. And the amazing thing to me about Psalm 22 is that it ends in praise. About halfway through the psalm, it says that God has answered him. And then it talks about declaring his name to his brothers and, and praising God in the assembly. And Psalm 22 is an incredibly dark lament that turns into incredibly bright praise. And that should help us as we read these words of Jesus and think about him, both crying out to God from this state of dark and deep agony, but also knowing what's going to happen after this. This is not the end of Jesus' story. Amen. And so these people, there's like this discussion about Elijah. And at first you're kind of like, well, that's out of left field. Why are they... Why are they saying that he's calling for Elijah? Um, and it, of course, they'll say it'll say in verse thirty-six that they they run up with the uh, sponge with sour wine on a reed and um, try to give it to him. And they say, "Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down." Well, you noticed in the Aramaic those words Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. Well, in Aramaic, that, that kind of sounds like Elijah. Um, kind of sounds like the name Elijah. And um, Stephen, what is the meaning of the name Elijah? 
So like yeah. the the Eli part means my God. Um, it's like yeah. El is like for Elohim, and uh, the Ja or Yah um, stands for Yahweh or Jehovah. Right. And so Elijah means my God is Yahweh or my God is Jehovah. Right. And so they're they're mistaking what Jesus is saying for talking about Elijah, and so they just use it as another opportunity to mock him. Um, is what it is. And so in verse thirty-seven. Mark tells us that Jesus, Jesus utters out a loud cry and breathes his last. But he breathes his last for now. Jesus will breathe again. And we'll, Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week in next week's episode. But wow. Um, we, are, we approach that verse with, with a lot of humility and very gently. As we think about the king of the world, the, the king of, of, of everything dying a horrible, horrific death on my behalf. And it's at this moment that Jesus breathes his last breath. It, again, there's so many, there's volumes that could be written about this, but it just says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Yeah, what does that mean? Why is that included for us? It, it's a fulfillment of, of a lot of Old Testament imagery. Um, we remember the instructions for the tabernacle and the temple and God teaching his people with simple pictures, how holy he is and that you can't just come into God's presence casually. There's so much that goes into approaching a holy God. And the high priest could only go through that curtain, that veil that was, if you go went into the tabernacle, you'd see, you know, the, the, the holy place with the lampstand and the showbread and the incense but there was still that veil between you and God. And only once a year, the high priest could go in there and offer blood and sacrifice, uh, sprinkle blood on the, the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And there's this over and over this reminder that you can't approach God. You can't approach God. God's near to you, but you can't just come into his presence. And with the death of his son, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And there's this picture of now the way is open. We have access to God. We have access to the very presence of God that just as the veil is torn, as Jesus' body is figuratively torn on the cross, we now have a way through the veil to God. Uh, Jesus would say, um, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me, and really through his death. That's how we have access to the Father. Yes. The Apostle John will later write in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. We can now approach the Father because Jesus went to the cross. He is our advocate. He is the reason why that veil was torn into, so we can now have access to God and be forgiven of our sins. Um, and Lord willing, uh, after we get done with the Gospel of Mark, we're going to zoom out and talk about some of these bigger themes, and we'll talk more about like the word propitiation and, and things like that. But I love tying First John 2 in with this section, particularly. And, and so, so this... Mark, yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Mark records for us that there's a Roman centurion 
that is looking on, perhaps participating in the crucifixion itself. But he stood facing him and saw how he breathed his last. He's the first person after the crucifixion to recognize that Jesus is the son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. And that's fascinating because this really bookends the whole gospel of Mark. You remember all the way back in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And Jesus has lived and now has died in such a way that even a Roman looking at the death of Jesus can say, this man was the son of God. That's powerful to think about that. Again, not a Jew, somebody you would not expect to confess this recognizes it in Jesus. And so Mark has made his case and we have yet to see the greatest evidence of Jesus being the son of God, which we'll see next week in chapter 16. But this is the death of Jesus, the crucified Christ. Well, as you normally would do with a dead body, um, it's time to bury it. And so this next section is going to talk about that. So let's go ahead and read verses 40 through 47 of Mark 15. It says, There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, Because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So we know, the rea- we see the reaction of several people here uh, who had been with Jesus through his ministry. One is of the women who followed him to the end, even when all of Jesus' followers, his disciples, the men who were with him had fled. Uh, We do know from John's gospel that he was present at the cross. But there are these women who were were faithfully there to the end. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, um, Salome. And it gives us some detail that they've been helping Jesus for a long time. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. Uh, Many other women came up with him to Jerusalem. And so we don't know as much about their service to Jesus as we do the 12, but Jesus was receiving help and support from all sorts of different people. And we see Mm -hmm. uh, these women played an important role in uh, helping Jesus up to this point. And their witness here that they are present at the crucifixion, they see him die. We'll see in verse 47 that they see where he's buried their role is going to become very important in the next chapter. So we're told here that they're present for the crucifixion and they're witnesses to his burial as well. So it's almost the Sabbath day and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the council and looking for the kingdom of God 
though it's interesting to me that he was likely a secret disciple up to this point. What is yeah, he? Yeah, you're, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. It says in Mark's account, particularly, he took courage and went to Pilate. Now, why, why would that have taken so much guts to go to ask Pilate for this body? I mean, this guy was just killed for being who he is. And so just by associating with him, um, you're kind of saying, I like this guy. I, I want to, I want to be a part of what this guy's a part of. And so he's really sticking his neck out, um, showing himself to be a, a follower of Jesus of sorts, if he is willing to ask for the body of Jesus. That's right. And so, uh, Pilate's surprised that Jesus has died so quickly. Um, and he gives the body to Joseph and Joseph takes careful care of the body, takes it mm -hmm. down, puts it in the linen shroud and puts it in this tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Now, this wouldn't have been very far from where Jesus was crucified. Um, and they roll a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And there's, of course, going to be some opposition that we see in the other gospels of people, hey, we need to put some guards there, you know, and make sure that uh, nobody steals the body uh, because Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. Um, but we're going to see these, the eyewitnesses here, uh, that Jesus' tomb is full for the moment. But Mark 15 leaves us on a, on a cliffhanger. All right, well, what's, what's going to happen? Um, if Mark 15 was the end of the story, we would not be talking about Jesus like this today. Yeah. Um, and the burial of Jesus is a special burial too. Not very many people got to be buried like this. Uh, Joseph was very likely giving Jesus his own tomb um, that he had prepared for himself to bury Jesus in. Um, so it was obviously Jesus. He is being buried as if almost like a rich man. And uh, Joseph was really sticking his neck out to make sure that that had happened. Yes. And so and Lord willing. We know from Matthew twenty-seven sixty that it was his own tomb. Oh, okay. Yes. Thank you. Well, Lord willing, next week, we're going to get into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, it is a story of hope. It's what all of this is pointing to. And we'll talk about the significance of the resurrection as well in next week's episode. So we're thankful that you listened today. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, review. That helps us to reach more people. If you're interested in online Bible studies, uh, find us on CapitalCityChristians.com. Or reach out to us personally, 717-585-0949, and email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today.